Those who had been scattered moved on, preaching the good news along the way. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and began to preach Christ to them. The crowds were united by what they heard Philip say and the signs that they had him perform, that they saw him perform, and they gave him their undivided attention. With loud shrieks, unclean spirits came out of many people, and many who were paralyzed or crippled were healed. There was great rejoicing in that city. Before Philip arrived, a certain man named Simon had practiced sorcery in that city and baffled the people of Samaria. He claimed to be a great person. Everyone from the least to the greatest gave him their undivided attention and referred to him as the power of God called great. He had their attention because he baffled them with sorcery for a long time. After they came to believe Philip, who preached the good news about God's kingdom and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Even Simon himself came to believe and was baptized. Afterward, he became one of Philip's supporters. As he saw firsthand the signs and great miracles that were happening, he was astonished. When word reached the apostles in Jerusalem that Samaria had accepted God's word, they commissioned Peter and John to go to Samaria. Peter and John went down to Samaria, where they prayed that the new believers would receive the Holy Spirit. This was because the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So Peter and John laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon perceived that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. He said, give me this authority too, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands will receive the Holy Spirit. Peter responded, may your money be condemned to hell along with you because you believed you could buy God's gift with money. You can have no part or share in God's word because your heart isn't right with God. Therefore, change your heart and life. Turn from your wickedness. Plead with the Lord in the hope that your wicked intent can be forgiven. For I see that your bitterness has poisoned you and evil has you in your chains. Simon replied, All of you, please plead to the Lord for me so that nothing of what you have said will happen to me. After the apostles had testified and proclaimed the Lord's word, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the good news to many Samaritan villages along the way. It's the word of the Lord. This is one of those passages that you hesitate uh, to have a quick thanks be to God after, right? This is a lectionary buster passage uh, that people don't normally pick, and uh, we decided not to skip over in one that you plan ahead of time, and then when you get to it uh, the week of, that you go, huh, okay. Uh, if you've been in church long enough, you've probably heard someone wish out loud, or maybe you've wished out loud, this is a season of church shopping, you've wished that you could just be or you could just find a church like the early church. You probably uh, wondered that. And usually it has something to do with the desire to get back to roots, to shed some of the clunky things that we've accumulated in favor of the simplicity of Acts 2.42, a common devotion to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and breaking bread and prayer. And I admit an attraction to that vision. It's noble and it's beautiful in its simplicity. 
But I wonder if our desires for that sort of church get things... This wouldn't have happened to the X2 church. <laughs> I wonder if our desires for that sort of church get things backwards. I'm not trying to stand up here and make a defense of institutional bloat and mission drift and music stands all over the place. What I mean is that we have this romanticism and it's on target with its goals, but I think it assumes that we're just like the early church, that our world is just like their world, and if we would just try harder, we could be more like them. But there should be a, a strangeness when we read these stories. It's a strangeness that comes from their world and the way it is being opened up that causes us to look deeper beyond what we have, what we know, and the types of people we currently are in order to become people we aren't yet. To be impacted by God's moving spirit in surprising ways on the way. This might make our world stranger than it seems when we wake up each day. Uh, when I think about this strange world of the Bible, I can't help but think about the theologian Karl Barth. Like, a theologian these days would not be on the cover of Time magazine. What a stud, right? Um, and he says, within the Bible, there is a strange new world, the world of God. This, uh, this answer is the same as that which came to the first martyr, Stephen that we read about a few weeks back. Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Neither by the earnestness of our belief nor the depth and richness of our experience have we deserved the right to this answer. What I shall have to say about it is that we only have a small and unsatisfying part of it. We must openly confess that we are reaching far beyond ourselves. And that's kind of the point, is that we are reaching beyond ourselves when we encounter this strange new world. So don't get frustrated. That's the point. When you get to challenging passages, say passages about magic and money and incomplete baptisms by the Spirit, we won't plumb the depths of that today. I don't have a good answer. You can ask someone who's currently a student right now at Potluck that, and they'll have an answer for you, I'm sure. But when you get to these passages, don't automatically assume you know what's going on or what the rules are or should be. Enter their world, which is strange, but also kind of familiar. Because it's the world of the same God that works and moves and encounters us in our world. There are intersections with these worlds. This is a world where people are being displaced because of persecution. It's a world where there are religious zealots, and this story's name is Saul, that are per perpetuating racially motivated terror. It's a world where the powers and principalities run amok and need to be cast out of people with shrieks, and perhaps entering this strange world won't be so difficult after all when we look around in our world and see some of those very same things. So, in our passage, there's 
this movement that has begun following Stephen's uh, persecution and these speeches by Peter. The disciples have become diaspora. They're moving out into the Greco-Roman world. It's striking to me how empowered and focused and motivated they are. They probably could have just stayed home and been safe if they just kind of let this whole Jesus thing blow over. People would probably stop bothering them, yet they persist. And Philip leads the charge down to Samaria. At least no one would follow Philip to Samaria, right? Samaria was not nearly as well policed as Jerusalem. It's not a big part of either the empire's plan or the temple's plan. It's a place kind of left to its own devices. Philip would be safe there from the religious elite from Jerusalem, but what would keep Philip safe from the wild ideas and practices of Samaria? He's kind of out of the frying pan and into the fire. It seems, though, that Philip has gained a pretty quick audience in Samaria. His message is, quote, good news about God's kingdom in the name of Jesus Christ. One of the men who took his message was a sorcerer named Simon. He was wielding, before he heard the message of, of Philip, he was wielding immense, quote-unquote, spiritual power, and he was awing people with signs and wonders. You can tell he, he's kind of doing a version of what is making the, the disciples so popular. And it appears that Philip's message was, in sense, in some sense, both familiar and threatening to him. It was natural and new. He, he was attracted to a kind of spirituality of signs and wonders of flash and pomp. But maybe the good news for us, the good news that you received, the good news that you may be receiving today for the first time, is always in some sense both familiar and threatening. Like it, it fits us, it speaks our language, it meets us right where we are, and it strums something resonant deeply within us, but it also calls us out. It creates a dissonance in what we've been and in who we've been, and it asks us to become something new, and it equips us to become something new, this good news. So Simon had been known by his signs and wonders, and he had successfully capitalized on them. This is like, Simon was kind of like, a, like an influencer or a YouTuber, that like early monetizer of signs and wonders and the ability to gather a crowd, right? It seems like this may have actually even put him in a position to believe in the wonderful good news of Jesus, but it also handicapped him from being able to give himself wholly over to something he can't control and shouldn't profit from. You see, like he was attracted to signs and wonders, but he, he knows no way of being in a world of signs and wonders that, that doesn't work for him. So when Peter and John come down, and I wonder if this was like a, you gotta see this, come on down guys, or we need help and quality control sort of trip. But <laughs> Peter and John come down, and Simon seems to revert back to his old imagination. Magic and money are at the core. Magic and money. And Peter rebukes him and calls him more deeply into repentance and Christ's forgiveness. 
It might be a good exercise for us this week to kind of do a, a personal kind of faith history and, and to, try to, to try to trace what, uh, when you first heard the good news, it might have been a long time ago, it might have been more recently, what was your imagination for what like a, a successful, vibrant, growing, real faith might be? And how, how has that changed? How has that either continued to expand on that first notion or been totally flipped, deconstructed, maybe rebuilt? How does it need to change? You can also maybe do this by taking a personal inventory of what your proclivities are, things that, that God might build on and use for building the kingdom, but also handicaps or landmines, things that you, uh, if you're not careful, might be um, major deterrences or be weaponized uh, in this new life that we're being, being given. Do that this week. Like sit down with a piece of paper or a journal and kind of think through that. Uh, I think it's interesting to, to trace even through seasons what, 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 was, what was success, quote unquote, in my faith like in, in high school, if that was part of your story. What was it like in college? What was it like when I became a, an adult quote unquote, what was it like when I had kids? What is it like as I'm growing older? And, and how has that changed and how does it need to change? The apostles though, in encountering Simon the sorcerer, they're pretty wide-eyed. They're pretty honest. They're not mincing words that a little baptism water hasn't yet washed off all of Simon's expectations for how spiritual power is used and, in his case, is weaponized. The passage, uh, this passage in Acts has been used to show that um, by some people that you just can't trust some people in ministry and that you have to call on the big guns, Peter in this case, to set people straight. In more extreme cases, it's been used to underwrite a colonialism that you have to like go and install a theology because people can't be trusted with the spirit on their own, right? Uh, the reason goes something like anything they bring to the table will be marred and threatening to this pristine gospel that we are bringing to them. There's also a, like another phenomenon in that the Simons of the world, the Simons of our world, really hurt people with their weaponized spiritual power, like really hurt people. The, this, is, this is true, this is the experience of so many people, of some folks here, that, that money and magic still hold sway. Magic may just mean like the intangible spiritual authority vested and consolidated, it's trust taken and trust abused. This passage makes me think of this expression. I don't know where I got it, but it sounds really West Wingy even as I say it. It's like fake Latin, so don't, I know there are some people that know Latin in here. Uh, illegitimy non carborundum, mean, like roughly translated, don't let the jerks grind you down, right? And so I, I, I read a passage about Simon uh, and, and the, the apostles' delicate response to them and think, don't, they really didn't let this jerk grind them down. I take immense comfort knowing that even in the earliest days, Jesus' church, again, this pristine church that, that, we, that, that we hold in such high regard, 
featured people with impure motives, but also it featured a deep effort to keep people safe, all the while not circling the wagons or locking down or excluding, and in many ways perpetuating the same harm that comes from consolidating power. Like, it's a really, it's, it's kind of simple, but it's really remarkable what's happening here. For all the force of Peter's words, and they are pretty forceful, after all, his nickname is The Rock, right? There's also, there's also this delicacy, this care and concern for this new guy. He doesn't, just, he doesn't get it, and that's okay, but also he's got to get it because he's going to hurt someone if he doesn't, right? He's, he, he's a new guy, but he's not yet new enough in Christ. Peter knows well what it's like to be a jerk, and he knows what he needed to not be one. And so he's helping this guy out. He sets the record straight. God's grace can't be bought, and that message that it can is toxic. It's poison to its core. This new guy actually gains new life by abandoning his old life that he knew. And Jesus might have mentioned something like this, of like, giving up your life to gain new, real, durable, abundant, overflowing life that matters. And Simon responds really positively to this message. It's kind of beautiful. For, for how harsh Peter's words are, you expect Simon to like get more magic-y and like try to cast some spell on him or something. And Simon says, no, actually, I didn't know that. Please pray for me. I don't want those things to happen. That's crazy, Right? It seems that Philip and Peter don't let the jerks grind them down, and they also don't let the jerks harden them into people who are calloused and untrusting. They don't let the jerks turn them into jerks, right? That's, a, that's an amazing life skill, if you can get it. <laughs> they stay tender and responsive and playful, and improvisational, and hopeful, and courageous, and unyielding in their ability to see wrong in idolatry, and instrumentation, and, and like how people take something good and instrumentalize it into an idol, and they call out money and magic, but not to cancel or cast away someone whom Jesus knows and sees, but to, to, to help them in their new life. Someone who, like the Samaritan woman at the well, also who has a complicated story, uh, is, is going to be part of this worshiping in spirit and truth. Do we remember Jesus meets the woman and that's how that story ends? He says, one day we will worship in spirit and in truth, your people and my people. Even though her life, even though Simon's life, even though some of the people in this room, even though some of the people we encounter, even some of us, our lives don't evidence much spirit or truth. And Jesus is so patient with us and so honest with us. I think of how much these like spiritual hucksters and abusers that like you could just like start a long list, right? It, it doesn't take much imagination to remember. Some of those have been people in our own lives. And I get it. Like they grind you down. <laughs> that, that, is, that is real damage and real trauma caused to so many. 
I've been listening uh, recently to a new podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. We'll make the subtext the text, right? Uh, <laughs> and it features reporting and storytelling around some pretty ghastly stuff around Mark Driscoll's church in the Pacific Northwest in the early 2000s. But what I found so interesting and so fruitful about the series so far is, for one, it's, it's told inside of a tribe. Like, it's not told by someone outside of it. It's told by someone who very much understands and very much participated in that world. Um, and I also um, th think it's, it's, it's beautiful and brilliant and pretty difficult that they focus on the harm of that particular church and that particular leader, um, but they draw out the many ways that Mars Hill's problems are also our problems or could be. Not in a way that absolves Driscoll or his enablers, but in a way that hopefully keeps us tender and responsive and courageous and unyielding and like calls out not just money and magic, but also like misogyny and nationalism and corrupt power and abusive tendencies in our leaders and in ourselves. It, 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 it focuses here so it can focus back on us to pray for repentance and renewal, to pray for health and wholeness, to pray for newness of life in the spirit. You see, the problem with that pastor at that church might have very well been the problem with Simon the Samaritan. His ministry hadn't been appropriately dismantled of the trappings of the old way in the old world. He hadn't yet received a new way. He just tried to reboot the, the old things that worked for him. A way of doing things apart from power and privilege. That This is the new way. It's, it's different from the celebrity and brand, the magic and the money. It's a way in which the spirit resists being commoditized still, but is instead powerful in its commonality, that each of us has access to the Spirit, and the Spirit is working in each of us. So this holding to account that we find in the early church in our Acts 8 passage, that I think what it results in is that it, it lets us be disappointed with our leaders without losing our faith. It lets us be disappointed with people without losing our faith. Our faith. It, it doesn't let the, the jerks grind us down or, or ruin our faith. It forms our faith into a worldview that doesn't shut down curiosity or wonder, but is also vigilant and deeply suspicious of the ways that the cycles of sin and death out there disguise and mutate themselves into the church, right? I, I loved, um, and I'm closing now, but I loved... Um, preparing the sermon and thinking about all these different threads this week, knowing the soundtrack for our Sunday together and knowing the songs that we would join our voices in. And I, I think 
I think it, it really put us in an imaginative space here today that, that we're always kind of in this posture somewhere between starting with singing How Long and that, that lament and all of those things and Daughters of Zion to ending with that, with that song from Reality Ministries that, that we regathered and that it was, it was actually beautiful. Uh, Katie was probably like, why aren't they singing? But it was beautiful to, to sit here and to hear all of the conversations and all of the connections and, and in the background to, to be hearing your love is all around me. And, and so I think we're always caught in this pole between things are right, how long, oh Lord, until they can be right, and wow, look at the beauty, and look at the grace, and look at the overflowing goodness and presence of God in this world. We're always caught between those two things. And somewhere in the middle are those other songs that we sang about how firm a foundation and God's patient kingdom coming. I, I, I love all of those things, I think, are, are bound into the imaginative headspace of this passage and, and probably our everyday lives, and they should be. So friends, as we live in this apocalypse, this time of unveiling and deconstructing the old world, let's, let's walk in hope. Let's walk with an urgency, but also kind of a, an unhurried patience. Let's, let's walk with humility and a spirit of repentance and repair, because the end of an old world, even just the end of our old way of seeing the world, the end of an old world is also always the beginning of a new strange world in which it's a world that is familiar, but it's also just beyond us. The kingdom of the heavens is at hand. It's at arm's reach from us. It's all around us. It's a kingdom that allows us to put down roots even when we're unsure of of how they're going to grow and what kind of fruit they're going to bear because we trust in the God of growth and health and harvest. Will you all pray with me? Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for um, challenging stories that, that uh, open up not just um, the early church's world, but open up our world. Uh, Lord, Keep working on our imaginations. Form us to be people um, that encounter you and recognize you at work and join you in that work in our world. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.